This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Today we bring you another presentation organized by the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine on the topic of bias and racism. The presentation, Students Speak, Confronting Bias in Maine Schools, was taped via Zoom on August 13th before a live audience filled with teachers. The featured speakers, Sophia Williams, Alexa Allen, Jamaica Ford, and Isaiah Reed, talked about their experiences as black students in Maine schools and their hopes and efforts for change. Shanna Bellows, who in addition to being a Maine state senator, is also the executive director of the center, is the moderator. The panelists tonight are Alexa Allen, Jamaica Ford, Isaiah Reed, and Sophia Williams. And before we go to them, we'd like to thank our sponsors. A number of foundations uh, are uh, behind this work all summer long. We've been doing trainings with teachers. In fact, next week we're wrapping up our eighth teacher seminar this summer. Our team of four educators led by David Greenham is doing some remarkable work, but we couldn't do it without these funders, the Morton Kelly Charitable Trust, the Brunswick Rotary Club, Maine Community Foundation, Sam Cohen Foundation, the Betterment Fund, the Hudson Foundation, and the Nellie May Education Foundation. So um, now what we've been waiting for, our first speaker is Alexa Allen. Alexa grew up in Western Maine. She's a 2008 graduate of Deerigo High School, and she's committed to advocating for racial justice, both personally and professionally. Alexa is currently a full-time mom who dedicates her free time to volunteering, most recently as a member of the Anti-Racist Education Advisory Group, Alexa Casey Allen. Welcome, Alexa. Hi, thank you, and thank you for having us here today and to be able to have the safe space to talk about our stories. Um, I'd like to start off a little bit about the area that I'm from. Um, I grew up in Western Maine and I graduated Jericho High School in 2008. So my experience with this area, it's very stuck in time and a certain way of thinking. Um, I don't want to generalize for the entire population, but it's definitely an area where people who have Racist beliefs and ideas are kind of free and comfortable to be openly racist. Um, it's very ingrained in the culture, and I want to emphasize that even though there are mixed-race families, even some family members still hold those racist values. So students of color from mixed-race families, they sometimes don't have home at their safe space. It doesn't necessarily mean they can go home. Um, and talk about the racist experience they had at school that day. Uh, so we want to keep that in mind when something happens to them that we could be their only outlet. Um, so when I started school, I had an experience with racism right off. When I went on the school bus right in kindergarten, I sat with a little boy that I didn't know and he told me that his mom told him I wasn't allowed to sit with him. And I said, why? Why am I not allowed to sit with you? I didn't even know who he was. Um, and then he said, because you're black. And it kind of hit me like, I don't know who this is. So his mom had to have sat him down before school and had that talk with him that there's a black girl at school and you're not allowed to talk to her and you're not allowed to sit with her on the bus. Um, so again, it's very ingrained in the culture and they know who we are. Um, I had problems throughout elementary school, but the problems kind of grew bigger as I got older. And 
there's something called adultification bias where black children are viewed as adults early on, even when they're still children. And um, black girls, they're kind of viewed as less innocent and adult-like. And this affected me when it came to the dress code at school. So I noticed that it was being targeted, even though what I was wearing still adhered to the dress code. Um, my friend and I decided to do an experiment where she wore an outfit on a Monday and I wore it on a Tuesday. And she, she was a white girl that was the same size as me and same age as me. And she went through the entire day without any problems. And the next day when I wore that outfit, I was sent to the principal's office first thing in the morning. And this is because now we know that I was, she was seen as a little girl wearing a little girl's outfit. And I was seen as a woman wearing a little girl's outfit. And that was inappropriate. Um, when I was in high school, I had a lot of, I had a lot more issues with teachers than I did kind of in elementary and middle school. I noticed that some of the teachers, it became evident that they hadn't had a black student ever or hadn't had one in a while. And um, I had an instance where one of my friends raised his hand and asked for an extension on the test. And the teacher replied, why should you get an extension? Do you think your skin is any lighter than anyone in this room? Um, so he was implying that if you were a white person in a room full of black people, you'd have a privilege, but you're not. Um, he first thought I was in there. And when he kind of made eye contact with me, it read on his face that he realized what he said was wrong. But there was never any acknowledgement or apology for what he had said. So all the kids kind of like were left thinking that was funny. Um, I had issues among my peers as well. The, the classic that I don't see you as a black person, which is an issue because you're implying that you'd rather see me as white than black and being black is a problem. Um, I would get teased if we'd have like away games and there was a boy that was black on another team. They'd say, that's your boyfriend. And I had issues with one girl in particular who I call my bully, even though I think that's kind of not a harsh enough word. Um, this was someone who really was relentless towards me and someone that would call me the N-word right to my face and laugh about it. So it wasn't any lighthearted or microaggression type of thing. It was really harsh. And this went on and on. And I never said anything, not because I didn't want to or didn't want help, but the scene had already been set by this time of how the teacher's attitudes were towards racism. And even my classmates thought it was kind of funny and I just didn't feel like I had a safe space to tell anyone or a designated person that I thought, oh, they will care about this and I can tell them they'll do something about this. I didn't have that. So I want to emphasize for teachers, if you have no complaints, it's not necessarily that, that there's no issues going on in your school. It could be that there's no safe space for the kids to talk about these things that are going on or no person that they feel safe telling. Um, I'll leave it there. I don't want to take up any more time, but I'll turn it back over to you. Alexa, I just want to say thank you for sharing those hard stories. 
Adelaide shared a video that Alexa did and placed on Facebook with our education team and our staff, and it was so powerful because I think too often in Maine, sometimes we say, oh, these things don't happen here. Um, we don't have racism in Maine, and it is clear that it does exist in our schools, and for you to have the courage to share your story. And when we get into the dialogue and question and answer, your suggestions for what teachers and administrators can do to make schools more safe and welcoming for all is incredibly powerful. So Alexa, I, I just wanna thank you so much. Our next speaker is Isaiah Reed. Um, Isaiah was born and raised in Kingfield, Maine. He attended Kingfield Elementary School through the sixth grade until he transferred to Mount Blue Regional School District, from which he graduated in 2017. He's currently a senior at the University of Maine at Farmington, where he studies biology, and recently was appointed, uh, and this is where I first um, saw Isaiah at work, um, very impressive as a member of the Maine Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Maine Tribal Populations. So Isaiah, it's a real um, pleasure to have you here with us tonight. Thank you for making the time. I'll turn it over to you. Hi, thank you so much. Uh, and I want to echo the same sentiments. Like, thank you for this opportunity to speak. Um, I guess um, I, I want to say that um, I'm a biracial person. Um, my dad is black and my mom is white. And I say this because I get asked a lot, what are you? And, um, but, you know, I have to give props to a kindergartner I encountered in second grade at Kingfield Elementary because he knew exactly what I was when he, without reason, came up to me at lunch, pointed at me and called me the N-word. Now, we may be shocked, like, oh, where did he hear that word? And also that he knew enough to apply it correctly. Um, but the most shocking part of the story is when I went to the principal, who was on lunch duty, who I also might add was a very respected educator, and she told me without much thought, tell me if he does it again. And that's the real issue. And I don't mean to call my former principal out. I think this is a response you get from a decent-sized group of current educators, especially in rural Maine. And I also don't think that those, are, those who mishandle these situations are bad teachers, just misinformed about the true struggles of BIPOC people in America and how important it is to address these things when they come up. And this reminds me of how at Mount Blue, High, at Mount Blue um, the Confederate battle flag was extremely popular among students. And some had it flying on their trucks, on their hoodies, coffee mugs, and, and what have you. My friend, who was a lot braver than I, asked a girl who had on their phone case, do you know what that flag stands for? And she said nonchalantly, yeah, freedom. And it's just like, why did she think that? But also, why didn't everyone else get up and say, excuse me? Why don't we unlearn this ignorance in school? Why don't educators ask them to remove that flag from their truck, get a different shirt, or provide them for students as they did for a shirt with marijuana on it or other dress code infractions. Um, why do we permit a symbol of hate and white supremacy in our schools? And I'll tell you why, and it's because we, um, as students, as well as our parents, teachers, and our teachers' teachers, were taught a sugar-coated version of American history um, that severely downplays um, the, race, the race issues that we've had in this nation for 400 years. Um, for instance, I was taught the Civil War was over states' rights and given the impression that racism kind of ended after Martin Luther King gave his I Believe speech. 
But only when I took it upon myself did I learn of the true origins of slavery in America, the 800-mile death marches of black people to plantations in the South, the massacre in Tulsa, um, James Baldwin, police quotas in U.S. cities, and incarceration rate disparities, to you know, name very few um, things. And it's not only the content, but it's also how much time we put into it, too. Um, why did my history class spend a month on the French Revolution, but only a week on the history of black people or indigenous people in North America? And still, we don't even talk about the history of other minorities who, can, who were and continue to be oppressed in the same way. Um, I truly believe that education is the key to creating a future where equality exists, because if students were taught this stuff the way it really was, I doubt I'd see as many stars and more stars and bars than stars and stripes at my high school. And it is from my experience that educators in rural Maine need to be even more aware of this hateful culture in our schools because nobody is a person of color, which is kind of the opposite, I think, of what educators think, because if there aren't people of color, then we don't need to worry about it. Um, but yeah, it's just the opposite. Um, um, hear people from all walks of life, like, including my friends in high school, stuff like that. And they said things and learned things that never get corrected. And students said the N-word almost like it was any other curse, make racist jokes about every race and religion that isn't white or Christian. And a few students like me who are minorities feel like we can do nothing about it or even feel that they have to laugh along because we were told, tell me if they say it again over and over again. Um, so that's, I guess, my introductory statement. Um, thank you so much for listening to uh, this platform. Isaiah, thank you so much um, for telling your truth um, and for those very wise words that we all need to listen to. Um, Sophia Williams is a senior political science major and Russian minor at Howard University and a 2017 graduate at Westbrook High School. And I want to um, say about Sophia that uh, she was recommended to me by my husband, Brandon Baldwin, who runs Maine's Civil Rights Team Project when I said I was looking for dynamite uh, young people to speak about their experiences. He said, you have to read Sophia's essay. Uh, she won a statewide contest for her. It ran in the Press Herald and I was just blown away. Uh, so Sophia, um, welcome. Uh, We're so glad to have you. Hi, thank you again, as everyone has said so far for the opportunity and just for, um, you know, having a space to talk about this stuff. But now that I'm here, now that it's my turn to speak, it's like, what do you even say? <laughs> um, so I, I had similar experiences because I'm also biracial. Um, I didn't grow up. I was born in New Mexico. Um, so Hispanic and white. And then I moved to Maine which just felt like it was white. And so in both places, I felt, you know, like out of it. Um, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I think being biracial taught me to not answer the question of what are you? Because I didn't know myself. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Maine is really, <laughs> I used to hate this place honestly, um, until I went to college in DC and felt like I was you know, home, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, 
uh, coming back after a few years of being in DC, I've noticed that a lot of the demographics of Maine has changed. And it's, you know, a lot more diverse in Southern Maine. And that like, it makes my heart, you know, it feels so great, but it also kind of worries me just because of how traditional this state is at times. Like we just went over LePage, you know? And that was like a mini Trump. And now we're going back to liberal. So it goes, it feels like it goes conservative, liberal, conservative, liberal, but no one ever really talks about like the cycle of everything that's being taught here. Like, honestly, one of, I, I love school. I think it's, I love to learn, but high school, I hated it because I love history. But um, it really makes you feel like an other. It really does. Um, they ask the questions, like, you have only a month for Americans, for Black Americans, right? But then you'll go into European history for the whole year. And then when you ask for just a little bit more, it's like... Didn't we give you freedom during this? Like, no. Like, it's just a lot of history that is wrong. And then you have teachers that don't look like you telling you that you're wrong about your history, that they already, that their ancestors in your head messed up for your ancestors. And so you end up hating your white side because it's like, you did this to this side. And then... Like, I feel like, like things won't really change until you have the representation in the teachers. Because I had one black teacher and he didn't want to talk about race with me. And then when he was exiled from the whole community, they reminded him that he was a black man. And it just, it's, they always love you. They always love your culture. They always love everything you have to offer. Sorry. But when you want the truth or when you want to progress, actually, it's, it's just like not on their regimen because they don't identify with you. Their kids don't look like you. So they're worried about their kids' safety and their future safely, safety, which everyone does. But it feels like we want to be so progressive, but until we realize what the problems are, it's not going to go anywhere. And um, I didn't mean to cry. I really didn't mean to, but um, yeah, I, um, it feels nice to see other people of color speaking, honestly. It feels really good. So thank you guys. Because um, yeah, it's been a long day. Like even at work, I had instances today where I wanted to say things and I couldn't. Like, and it's just everywhere you go. And it's like, you think after you leave school, you know, it's going to be so much better, but it's just, um, at least you're not forced to learn that, you know? So that's really it. Sorry. <laughs> kind of went off. Oops. No, thank you. No apologies whatsoever. I think one of the really important things about every conversation and every reckoning around the racism that is inherent in our systems, in our educational curricula, it's important to recognize that this is emotional and there's a lot of pain here. There's over 200 years of pain 
And so I just want to thank you. Um, it's we really deeply appreciate it. Um, and uh, thank you for sharing and using your voice first in that powerful op-ed that ran on the Press Herald, um, and then tonight in today's panel. Um, it matters. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This presentation, Students Speak, Confronting Bias in Maine Schools, took place on August 13th, organized by the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine. We'll put a link to Sophia Williams' An Open Letter to the American Ghetto and Its Disenfranchised on the WERU website with the archives of today's program. Executive Director Shenna Bellows is the moderator. And for teachers, I think one of the things that we want to model with this panel is one of the reasons we wanted college students who've had this experience, you know, not asking the person in the room to be the speaker, but asking people who've graduated, people who've been there to come back and speak. Our next and last panelist is Jamaica Ford. Uh, Jamaica is a friend of Adelaide's. Adelaide recommended her for this panel. She grew up and went to school in Rumford in Mexico, Maine graduating from Mountain Valley High School class of 2012 and going on to the University of Maine where she studied social work. Today, Jamaica lives in Portland. Um, and I have to say, Jamaica, shout out again to my husband. He said you were involved in um, a brew of, of, a, of a craft beer, the proceeds of which are going to the NAACP um, with a brewery up in Orono. So he's very excited that you're on the panel for lots of reasons. Um, so Jamaica, welcome. We're really glad to have you. Hi. So yeah, my name's Jamaica. I'm like a little uncomfortable because normally when I'm talking about stuff like this, I'm in the middle of a protest. And for some reason, it's a lot easier for me to like speak my truth when I'm like scared. So um, and while I'm thinking of it, this is the beer um, so this we did with a collaboration with Orno Brewing Company. Um, and so just to kind of key in on that, this label here is a nationwide, um, brand, if you will. And it started with a brewery that I'm blanking on right now, but basically it encourages all other breweries to create a beer and find a national and local organization to donate the proceeds to. Um, I went to UMaine and... I started bartending there and created some really strong relationships with um, Abe, who's one of the owners of Orna Brewing Company. And he approached me and asked if I wanted to be on this. So 100% of the proceeds go to the NAACP and also XLP, which is my friend's um, basketball program in Portland. And it's, it's open to everyone, but it's predominantly African immigrants. And a lot of times sports are what gets, you know, black kids an opportunity to get education and stuff. So I felt really strongly about that. Um, and then kind of to like start to tell my story, I write, um, I write poetry and me reading this will be like the easiest way for me to like get comfortable. Um, and then I just kind of want to touch on a couple things that all three of you have said that also happened to me when I grew up. So I just kind of want to connect that. Like I knew of Alexa cause I grew up in the town next to her, but like the fact that like, you guys said some things and I was like, yeah, yep, that happened is, is really mind blowing. Um, okay. I know you see me. You remind me every time you say you don't see color, but can you hear me? Can you hear me? Expose your ears and hearts as I grant you access to walk alongside me, 
down this dark and twisted path that is my childhood. Is that so much to ask for? Feel my suffering, suffering I felt when being called cactus head and pushed into a sandbox. Feel the awkwardness, you know, the awkwardness you feel when you slip up and say nigga in front of me. Awkwardness I felt when asked if I was blind because I didn't have pupils. My adolescent mind trying to piece together why someone would ever ask me that. Being too young to grasp that I was being asked because she had never made eye contact with a black person before. That her mind told her to assume my eyes were impaired because they are as black as her morning coffee. See my scars, burns from a flat iron attempt, attempting to achieve compliments only received when my curls were hidden. Feel the shame, shame I carry while forming new friendships knowing these questions will soon follow. Is that your real mom? Where's your dad? Are you adopted? See the pain in my eyes when I tell you my main oppressors were my teachers, the ones paid to shape our minds at a very young age. Hear the rage in my voice when I tell you, yes, my real name is Jamaica, and no, you can't touch my hair. See the insecurity in my body language as I approach work with fresh box braids, knowing said braids will be the topic of discussion for the entire day. Hear the exhaustion in my voice as the bar stools fill and my lips become a broken record. Actually, they're not dreads, they're box braids. Yeah, eight hours is a long time to sit in a chair. And no, you can't touch my hair. Feel the disarray when finding self-portraits, the confusion when, I, when seeing I chose white, yellow, and blue crayons, not brown and black ones. Feel the grief, the gut-wrenching feeling, knowing some men will never bring me home to their parents, but will show up their light-skinned girl to all their guy friends. Believe the torture my mind goes through as I relive these experiences for your benefit to learn from them. The infuriating thought, knowing you act as though you can only learn how to not be racist, as if I choose to make my heart ache and my eyes cry again and again, and again, as I tell you these stories. As this dark, twisted path comes to an end, remember, you can hear me, you can see me, oh, you can feel me, but you'll never be my story. Uh, so yeah, so I wrote that about a month ago. Um, we've been protesting out here in Portland on and off for a while since George Floyd was murdered. And when I was growing up, like, I didn't know what to do, but to fight. Because I didn't have people that looked like me. My sister is four years older than me. So when I got into high school, she was off to college. Um, and I had one black friend. He was my best friend. And he was unfortunately the type that felt defeated. So he no longer spoke up. So I was fighting for him. I was fighting for me. And... I never spoke about these things. So now to be 26 and to like think about it and yell at it at protests because it's just coming out. Like when I get on those police steps and I can see sniper rifles on top of the hotel roofs and know that there's cops behind me, like it feels like the child in me is screaming and I don't know what I'm saying. So then I also had to know that because I'm now becoming a more recognized face in this movement, if you will, in Portland, that I gotta make sure that 
what I'm saying can't be used against me. Um, and so like a, one last thing, so I don't want to take up too much time is that I unfortunately am now dealing with the opposite side of trying to get to know people that aren't, um, half black and half white people that are hundred percent black. And unfortunately now feeling the hate that we have within our own community. Um, and like, there's been events, like I wasn't allowed to speak at Juneteenth. I was told I wasn't black enough. Um, like I have slave roots. One, we're all black, you know? Um, and yeah, and I don't like feeling like I have to explain myself, but I also need to check that we're unfortunately taught to hate each other. And I'm taught to be hated because my curl pattern's loose and I show more of white features than black sometimes. So I'm kind of in this world where I feel like I'm never white enough for white people. I'm never black enough for black people. And like, all I want is change. And so like, I've been like really feeling down and like, I didn't want to do anything in this movement. Uh, and so like, thank you guys. Um, Cause this is kind of like what I needed to see faces and to know that like there, there is people that are listening. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and yeah, I just want to say, I want to echo something in the chat from our board president, Nancy Spiegel. We are listening. Um, and it, and someone else said, Jamaica, I've seen you at all the protests in Portland. You're amazing. Thank you. Question that I have um, for all of you is, you know, we have a number of teachers here with us tonight and um, a significant number of teachers who've been with us uh, for different workshops this summer. This week, we're finishing up a workshop confronting bias and anti-Semitism in the classroom. Um, we did workshops with Southern Poverty Law Centers teaching tolerance, and um, we did, uh, we've been doing some Holocaust workshops as well and an immigration workshop. But if you could talk to one of those teachers um, or go back to a teacher that maybe didn't listen um, quite as well as they could have, um, what's one piece of advice that you would have um, to that trusted adult for making the classroom more safe and welcoming for black and brown students? Um, go for I it. I would say having conversations and like how we were talking about how just because there's only one black kid in the room or none, like the rooms where there's none is where the conversations need to be had the most. And like, so my first experience with blackface, I was a freshman and uh, we were doing our homecoming floats and my class was rock and then there was the country and then I believe it was the juniors were hip hop. I didn't even know what blackface was. And that's my thing too, where it's like, we got to educate ourselves. We got to educate these children. Like growing up black in a like white world and for me, like I had my white mom who was trying to teach me what she could and knew, but like I needed a figure. And I remember seeing these kids get out of their cars with blackface on and I didn't know what it was, but I knew it wasn't right. And I've talked with these, some of these students and I'm friends with them. And we've talked recently and we discussed this because we never talked about it. And they were never told and like sat down and truly taught what was wrong. So we missed an education thing right there. And I know that my mom has said she's spoken with other people in the community that are her age that 
were saying that they didn't even know what blackface was. Like we really got to do a lot of like relearning. And because unfortunately these students went through years of their life, like this was in 2009 and these students went through their life, unfortunately probably pissing off a lot of other black people, excuse my language, because there was a lack of education. And that's like, we have power and it's with our minds and it's with conversations and like, it needs to happen in these small schools, like the most, especially in Northern Maine. Like we, we need to talk and to try to be able to be vulnerable and like just listen to each other and learn. So that's my take on that. That's what I would tell my teachers that did listen. Cause again, I'm not trying to generalize. There were a lot of great people that I learned stuff from where I grew up. Alexa or Sophia, do you want to add or expand advice for teachers that you have that are listening tonight? Yeah, um, I would just say, I think Isaiah touched a little bit on this too, but really defining what racism is and not just an elementary school telling the kids, oh, it means that some people think that the color of your skin means you should have certain things and that's bad. And then you don't talk about it again until you learn about the civil rights movement in middle school. It needs to be really defined, even the little microaggressions that we call them. Um, we need to just be able to recognize when it's happening so that our friends can call it out and we're not just left feeling weird about it on our own. Sophia and Isaiah, advice for teachers. And then we've got some great questions in the chat that I want to open up to any of you that want to answer them. Yeah, I just have a quick thing. Um, I would probably say that um, one, to learn, like, um, I love this because every day I realize that I don't know a lot. <laughs> like every day I learn something new. So, you know, there's always so much to learn. But I think it's just even as educators, I think sometimes people get caught up in knowing everything that they put their blinders on. So they, they think they know everything. And um, even though you've heard it a thousand times, it's like, are you really listening? And are you really comprehending that? And also not to take it personally, because it's like, <laughs> in order to talk about race, you have to realize that like, even though you don't think you're the problem, that's still part of the problem, you know? Like, like um, I've had family members that will just um, shut me down and gaslight me because, because they don't think I've experienced this or that, but um, they're just not willing to be uncomfortable and to have their own views that they've had for so long changed. But that's really... <laughs> Great advice. Isaiah? Um, yeah, uh, to kind of reiterate what I originally said a little bit, but I think a really important, like what I would say, is that it's really important to... Um, have like swift and like quick reaction to when you see, when teachers see hate in the in the school. Um, I actually was an education major for two years at UMF, and um, I, I did my classroom experience. And I, you know, like when kids think they're being quiet, you hear everything they're saying. Luckily, I never heard anything um, derogatory, but you know, like. F-bomb, stuff like that, you hear it. And I know at my school that that teachers heard people say the N-word and 
other derogatory slurs for other races and and just um, bad race jokes and stuff like that. And I just want to like urge teachers to, when they hear that to like address it to don't be scared to address it. And also um, I think teachers, as I mentioned, like it's a systemic issue of our, like it's not just this generation is getting a, like isn't getting education. Our teachers didn't get the education in most cases less than we did. And um, like just looking at textbooks from the seventies, it's like, what? <laughs> like, you know, um, calling slaves who didn't do their work disobedient instead of, you know, rightfully upset, <laughs> um, like stuff like that in the textbooks, you know, like, so they didn't get this, a good education either. And then we're asking them to teach us. So I, what I'm trying to get at is that I think that teachers need to educate themselves on these issues a lot. So instead of them being like, Oh, I don't feel comfortable addressing this student um, saying the N word or making this joke, they can feel confident going in and telling that student why it's not okay and be the change that we really desperately need. Um, because, um, uh, I think as Jamaica said, uh, I was in high school. I wasn't really aware of all the issues. It wasn't really until college that I started looking back and be like, wait, that's messed up, you know? And, um, I was definitely like just complicit in it all and totally okay. And just like, you know, never brought it up and never was, you know, um, I guess like an issue, you know, bringing up these problems. Um, and, and just to, sorry, not to get too much time, but, and the reason I actually left education, um, was race issues, um, in my university classrooms where I was in a class that was targeted, um, at, um, English language learners and also, uh, BIPOC history, stuff like that. And my teacher is a self-proclaimed, you know, expert at this. And we read this thing from the 1609 project. And then it's like, anyone want to talk about this? And then we got onto, um, like no one said anything. And she said, all right. And then just start talking about her Disney plus subscription, not going through. And, you know, I just, I like almost cried. Like, um, it was so disturbing that even at this level of education, when I have a class actually about this, I'm not getting the education that I want. And that's when I really started taking it upon myself because um, no one else is going to do it for you. And we need to change that. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. You're listening to a presentation called Students Speak, Confronting Bias in Maine Schools, organized by the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine. It was taped via Zoom on August 13th. The beer you heard Jamaica Ford refer to is Black is Beautiful Imperial Stout by Orono Brewing Company. Back to the presentation, Executive Director Shanna Bellows is the moderator. You mentioned the 1619 Project and something else you just said, Isaiah, um, elicits a question. The very first question in our chat was um, from a teacher who says that he spends three quarters of the year teaching Black American history from the Civil War up to the Civil Rights Movement, trying really hard not to sugarcoat it. Uh, he goes on to say, I teach in a predominantly white district with a lot of uh, racist students and parents. What events and people do you think we need to teach about? Thoughts from anybody on that? But I, I think the question is, what, what should we be teaching? Sophia, go for it. Um, 
anything but slavery sometimes we had a we had a history before that and all the all the inventions that were by black people that are now given to white usually men to um like that credit i feel like whenever i was i was at, westbrook's pretty diverse but um it's still you were still taught the same stuff that didn't really make sense so um damn i sorry i don't even know how i started that it was the um pardon me um you're okay i it was the question about what to teach and what not to teach and you said not to teach quite so much about slavery and yeah because <laughs> um i feel like people get caught up and they think that that's the only history that we have in this country but um like that's why i went to an hbcu for college is because like you get taught that there's so much more and that that goes to everyone um all people of color like the more you study these regional or like specific studies it's just the correct history and that's what i really learned like leaving maine for school is that like everyone's regular history is you know is <laughs> just white history but then everyone's little private histories are just the additions but i think we just need to instead of grouping it aside just put it all together and so this is american history with everyone's stories there because it's we're always going to be an other unless you <laughs> remind people that we are american so that's what i would probably <laughs> love it any other thoughts about things to teach um or things not to teach in the classroom i'd like to hop in on that real quick um as as Faye said, like not just slavery and also like stuff came before, but also not just the civil rights movement and that um, we need to like talk about what has happened after the civil rights movement. And, you know, in some many cases, the reversal of like, like the resegregation of um, American communities just by, um, you know, laws that, didn't seem to be um, racially charged, but ended up causing segregation. And um, also, I really want to learn about, if I was in school, I'd really want to learn about people who stood up for black people and didn't get assassinated, you know? Cause like that, that was something I felt when I was in middle school was like, it's like, geez, like maybe I could be a difference kind of thing. Then it's like, oh yeah, then Martin Luther King got assassinated and oh yeah. Um, Abraham Lincoln was shot, you know, like, and Malcolm X, like, we only learn about the ones that die. And then, so it, in a way, makes you not think about it. And I think and to add to the part where what we should, what, like, what text might be really good, um, a really impactful one for me was The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. Um, and also, um, we should learn about other, others and ones that weren't shot, but like, um, John Lewis, uh, his, you know, uh, ama just amazing story, and also women in civil rights movement, such as Dorothy Height. Um, like, there's so much more to talk about, and it's not just Emancipation Proclamation happened, and Black people didn't weren't slaves anymore, and then the civil rights movement happened, and we're not racist anymore. Um, 
we just we skip so much and we don't talk about what's happening now. Jamaica, you raised your hand. <laughs> um, yeah, so something that I've talked a lot about with my friends, um, I've met a couple of people that grew up in Sanford that are black. And so I've gotten to hear from them and it's, you know, it's bad everywhere. But they were saying that they wish that black culture was just like taught regularly, that it wasn't like, okay, now we're going to talk about black people, like that it was just part of the flow and the conversation. And I think people would be more comfortable with talking about deeper stuff if we were able to just bring in blackness into schools. Like, think about a math problem, you know? Instead of saying Bobby and Jane have five apples, why don't you use some other names you've never heard? And that's like coming from me. Like, every time I say my name, like I used to call, I used to tell people my name was Jasmine because I was sick of explaining myself. Like if I was at Starbucks or wherever, like, you know, getting takeout, I didn't want to have the back and forth. And I really think if we just normalized being black, like that's why we're here is that because we're so ostracized that we have to have a meeting to try to be like, yo, like, like, yes, see our color, but also see that like, we're just people, you know, like, and I think it's like the less that we talk about it at a young age is a not like another reason why we have an additional target on our back. Cause now I'm again, like 26 trying to correct my friends and they're confused because we've all been learning the wrong things for forever, you know? So I just think having more conversations and just normalizing it. And the more we do that, the more I think more people will be able to like sit down and look at themselves. Cause it's also hard too to look at yourself and be like, wow, like, I've hurt people, like my words have hurt people, the things I thought were okay that were, I didn't even know what microaggressions meant, you know? And so like, I just think again, just kind of, sorry, I went on a little rant, but like just normalize being black. Just that's it. <laughs> like, Alexa, you first mentioned the microaggressions and um, there's a question in the chat in terms of survival advice for current black indigenous and people of color kids in main schools um, and this is a teacher saying that they have kids who are biracial or BIPOC in fourth seventh and tenth grade yeah so I think I mentioned earlier too is creating a safe space is so important I think there there should really be a, a space where kids feel comfortable going or even a person that they feel comfortable talking to and not necessarily wanting to have their aggressor or bully punished because sometimes that can be a hindrance and that made me not want to go to someone because I knew there would be a situation where that kid would just be slapped on the wrist and then they'd probably make it worse towards me right so I I think it's good to have just a space to talk about those things and not necessarily have to be forced to have a course of action happen after that. There should be, but just to know that you can talk about your day and not have to name names, I guess. Anyone else want to weigh in on that, on that question of um, survival strategies or, and this is, this links Alexa, it was like you anticipated it. And that is a question in the chat about how do we or teachers make it safe for these conversations to begin without um, 
enabling participants to stay in their comfort zones with really challenging them to learn? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't have all the answers to that of how that would work in the school system. I'm not a teacher, but I don't know if anyone else wants to join on that. Yeah, Sorry to single you out. Anybody else? No, no. That's fine. <laughs> safe spaces or on the issue of survival strategies for BIPOC kids? Um, I would like to kind of counter off what Alexa said with, like, trying really hard to, like, make sure that these kids have someone that's safe. And, like, yeah, usually there's a school counselor, but, like, as teachers, like, you like try to be more mindful and like see, like Isaiah said, you know, like we all know we've heard teachers sit, hear kids say the N word. Um, and I think as educators, like you can really help with in the classroom, but like try to reach out and make that black person or a BIPOC child know that they're safe. And like, you know, like I said, for me, like I used to just try to scream and fight people because I didn't feel like anyone had my back. And especially because like all I pretty much saw were white people. And Mrs. Jordan changed that for me. Like she brought me to meet Obama and Michelle when I was in middle school. And I had no idea like what that meant at the time. And now I have these pictures with them and I'm like, that's so crazy. And I'm thankful that I had her. And it, but it doesn't just have to be someone that's black. Like we, we're allies and like we need to make these kids feel safe. And it's just like doing your part to reach out and acknowledge like, and that's what really was my hard thing growing up was like, I was always outspoken. Like the second something racist happened, I was in the principal's office, you know? And, and it's just like to grow up and feel like no one was listening when I'm literally saying like, yo, that person just called me the N word. Like what, as a kid, what else can you do when you're screaming for help and it feels like everyone's like just turning a blind eye. So to kind of circle back to that, like just really check in on these kids, like on top of that, they're growing and changing, going through all this other stuff. And like, it's really, I don't know, just like check in and, and make sure that these kids feel safe. One thing that I, I saw the Department of Education said, would any of the panelists like to work with us on some of our policies and curriculum, which I think is wonderful. But one thing that I would say to all teachers, administrators, to the Department of Ed is at the HHRC, our policy is not to invite speakers without ensuring that we pay them an honorarium because we do not want them to do our emotional labor and, and teach us for free. So if you're inviting them to speak at, their, at your school, and you should, because they could come remotely, you should make sure to pay them the same honorarium that you would pay other guest speakers. Um, and similarly with the Department of Education, you should absolutely invite them to collaborate and pay them as you would um, a white consultant um, or other consultant. So. Last words of advice from our awesome panelists. Um, just any closing thing that you want to say. No pressure, um, but anything that you'd like to leave us with uh, this evening. <laughs> Isaiah, you're first. Uh, okay. Um, so I, I guess I kind of want to go off that last question because I think that was a really great like conclusion way to end it. And um, uh, Again, thank you. And I wish this was longer almost. I, I love talking to everyone and hearing what everyone has to say. Um, but just that 
it, it shouldn't be the responsibility of those students who are minorities to have to go to a teacher to um, you know, report their problem. It should be a teacher that notices it, as I've talked about, and then addresses it. And um, and a good way to do that, because this last question I really liked, um, and I, I was in fifth grade, and this actually didn't have to do with race, but I, I think it was fifth grade. Um, whenever, um, you know, gay marriage was on the, the table, the, the hot topic, um, I supported it. Um, as a fifth grader, because, you know, um, and I got bullied <laughs> um, for supporting it. And, you know, four people in my class were just always bullying me about it. And I only have nine kids in my class. So that's like half the class. <laughs> um, uh, and my teacher took me, noticed and took me aside and just talked to me about it. And as I mentioned, it doesn't mean that I want those students to be punished or suspended or get detention. Um, just sometimes just talking to that student or sometimes, um, and when I say address it, it doesn't mean like detention for you. And I just said it, it can mean just saying that's not okay. And here's why. So I guess that's my closing remark. Um, I think we could take home from this. Sophia, do you have some closing thoughts on this? Uh, yeah. Uh, one, just again, thank you for this opportunity. Just it low key felt like a little therapy session to get out, but um, just, you know, like everyone is going through something at some point in their lives, or at least that's what I have experienced. And especially right now when everyone is so afraid to be even close, like empathy is more important than ever because I know how it feels to not identify with a group and you feel yourself losing empathy and losing, you know, any sort of sympathy for what they're going through. But when you step back from all the quote unquote politics and opinions and all, and you just get back to the, the human part and you remember that like, if you were in that position, if you were that child who is being treated like an adult, like you, you would want someone to stop that too. So that's really it. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's all of it. That's so important. It's so powerful. Um, Alexa, did you turn off your video because of the sound? Oh, oh yeah. Sorry. Okay. I didn't know. <laughs> no problem. Yeah. So your last words and then, and then Jamaica will come back to you. Do you have any yeah. final concluding thoughts? Um, just thank you so much, everyone, and all the panelists for sharing their stories. They were very relatable, and it was, like Sophie said, a therapy session almost. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just another thing I wanted to add with the question of what can we implement in the learning, um, Maine has a historical side to the racism, and Malaga Island is a story that I learned about as an adult. And I never learned about in school. And I think that's a really important story to share in school as well. Absolutely. We completely agree at the HHRC. That's been one of the themes of some of our teacher tra trainings. And we have to teach Maine's hard history. We have to teach also about Maine's black and brown heroes. There are a lot of wonderful people who've made a difference in Maine's history and the HHRC has a project right now to collect those stories. Um, Adelaide's been working with me on that. Um, it's hhrcmaine.org backslash vision 2020 to share your thoughts about who we should celebrate 
in terms of Maine's black and brown heroes um, over the last 200 years and beyond. Because we need to make sure that bicentennial celebrations or centennial celebrations don't become celebrations of whiteness um, and erase the contributions of people of color. Jamaica, um, any final concluding thoughts? I kind of just want to counter off what everyone said and just say thank you um, for everything that y'all said. And like, this is a lot and I didn't realize how many people were watching. So like, that's super cool. Um, and it's just nice to know that this is a safe space. And so like everyone that's in this chat, like I'm trying to keep up with everything, but I'm going to put my email in there um and that goes for everyone like if you want to have these conversations like i'm here and i love that this is something we can all do together um but like mental health in the black community is very important to me um and like someone who's currently dealing with like cyberbullying from white and black people like i feel that hard currently um and so like if that's something any of you are dealing with or want to learn about like that's something I would love to extend um my knowledge and time on because it's super important um but yeah thanks again and this is awesome and like this gives me a lot of a lot of hope for Maine you know sometimes I like to just say oh I hate my hometown I don't and like the experience brought us all here today and like this shows that people are listening and I think that that's like super cool so yeah, thanks. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. Our thanks to the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine and the presenters you just heard, Sophia Williams, Alexa Allen, Jamaica Ford, and Isaiah Reed, for allowing WERU to broadcast this presentation, which was recorded on August 13th. More information about the center and their workshops is available at hhrcmaine.org. I'm Amy Brown. Join me again in two weeks at this time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents, only here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming online at WERU.org, where you can also find our archived programs and on the WERU app.